Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. Hello to all of you good humans out there and welcome to a special bonus episode of Good Humans Podcast. This is guest episode number 66 and why it's special is today, the day this episode comes out, is World Gratitude Day and we have a very special gratitude guest on for today. But first, a big thank you to everyone who has tuned in time and time again. This podcast continues to grow and it's all because of you. So if you're enjoying it, make sure you share it with your friends. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow. Five stars, all that good stuff. It is a massive help to me. Today's episode is, like I said, a special one for World Gratitude Day. Today's guest is a guy by the name of Chris Shembra. Chris is from over in New York in the United States and He's known as the Gratitude Guru. He's written a couple of really, really interesting books around gratitude and is, yeah, basically a gratitude expert. In this conversation, got to know all about Chris's story. It was really cool understanding the way that he grew up and then, yeah, how he found gratitude and the impact that it's had on his life and those around him. It's really interesting the way that he talks about having gratitude around the dinner table and the way that he's built a really successful business all from the power of gratitude, basically. So I'm not going to say too much more. This is a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it and I hope you do too. So let's jump straight into it. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Chris Shembra. How you going, mate? Oh, Cooper, thanks for having me, man. You're you're such a bright light and a, and a young inspiration in the world. And I'm honored that you took the time to have us on to talk about a topic that you and I share so dearly, gratitude. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you've been called by USA Today, the gratitude guru and over in Australia, myself and a few of us are kind of gratitude crusaders as well and trying to spread the (laughs) power of gratitude. And I'm really excited to get to know your story where gratitude became such an important part of your journey and yeah, the effect it's had on your life. But I mean, the first question I opened Good Humans podcast with is what are you grateful for today, right now? What am I grateful for today, right now? I would say, I would say, uh, I would say this apartment, um, we bought this, we moved into this apartment back in March of this year and I was able to, um, dedicate an entire room in the apartment to, just be my office and to hang that bookshelf that we were talking about beforehand. And we've got these Japanese ginkgo trees growing outside and wonderful sunlight. And it's just, I just realized how much time I spend in here and how happy I am and how lit up the room is. And it provides me a great, uh, a great source of joy. And uh, so I'm super grateful for this apartment and to the, uh, the previous owners, uh, Mike and Mary for, 
um, creating a good energy that was able to transfer over to us to provide some pretty good healing these last couple months in my life. Wow, what a very well thought out and beautiful answer to the question. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect, I wouldn't expect anything differently. And for anyone listening, the bookshop that uh, Chris was talking about in his background, I get to see it right now because I'm talking to Chris on Zoom. He's over in the states. Is completely what is it? There's twelve shelves, and they're all color yeah. coordinated. All the books are just in white, and then the next row is blue, yellow, and pink, and then the next row is blue, multicolored, and pink, and then we've got black and dark books up the top. It's it's very aesthetically pleasing to be looking at. <laughs> it's um. There's an entire shelf dedicated to Harry Potter. Every bookshelf's got to have a Harry Potter shelf. Oh, I love that. I'm a big Harry Potter fan. Actually, I'm a big Harry Potter movie fan. I'm going to tell the truth and say I've never actually, I bought the whole box set of Harry Potter and I've actually never read them because I'm too busy reading self-development books like your books, <laughs> not your books yet, but I will read your books. But yeah, um, books, books are a great way, but let's, um let's get into the story. So I guess, where'd you grow up? What was family life like growing up and yeah, going into school, what was the uh, visions for your future? Great question, Cooper. Um, I I grew up uh, I grew up on an island here in America. Uh, it's called Hilton Head Island. It's in the state of South Carolina, which is in the south, the the southern part of the United States of America. And uh, look, I I had a nurturing set of parents. I had a mom and a dad. I'm an only child. I went to the same school my entire life. From when I was, uh, you know, a young kid until I graduated high school at the age of eighteen, to then go off to university, um, and 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 growing up on the island was uh, was great because we had interesting folks that would visit our town. We had a lot of tourists that would come in, um, but our 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 island was known for boating and leisure and tennis and golf and all these wonderful things. Now, as good as I can paint a picture of my childhood on the island, I must also say that my childhood kind of fucked me up. So at the age of four, four and a half, five, one could tell that uh, I had a lot of energy I, I I had a lot of curiosities. I wanted to just run and play and yell and scream and do all the things I could ever dream possible. And, and that scared some people. And it scared people so much that they started driving me up to the doctor's office every weekend, to which the doctors eventually would say, yeah, this kid, Chris, he's got attention deficit hyperactive disorder, ADHD. Mm -hmm. and uh, ADHD was just kind of new at the time here in the late 80s, early 90s. And so they said, all right, the best treatment for ADHD, let's put these kids on these drugs. And so at the age of five, I was given a super high dosage of ADHD medication, of which I would stay on until I was 20 years old. Every day, 86 milligrams, more than the, I mean, more than you could shake a stick at. So did my life look good on paper? Yes, I was involved in philanthropy and volunteer opportunities, 
Yeah, I excelled at sports. Yeah, I got good grades. Yeah, I did all those things. I was the the drama theater guy. I was all those kind of things. Um, but I don't remember 15 years of my life. I don't remember ages five through 20, hardly at all. And um, and it was a pretty it was a pretty traumatic 15 years. Wow, it sounds um yeah, it sounds incredibly difficult. And it's nice that you can reflect on that now and understand kind of what you went through and have the maturity to look back and yeah, understand that maybe those years of your life looked great from the outside, but you were going through such maybe not a traumatic time, but just a confused time because as a kid, you get put on a medication and you you don't think to question it. You don't think any differently. And when you don't get any opportunity to change, what was it like when you, when did you kind of come up with the idea to get off medication and when did you start understanding that, Hey, maybe this isn't making, and what did it make you feel like that you're kind of referring to? Was it just numb and just like forgetful or was it, yeah. What was that experience like through high school for you with taking, um, well, I mean, it's not Adderall. We call it Ritalin here in Australia. Yeah. Adderall, um, Ritalin, Concerta, <laughs> all, all kinds of different names. Yeah. So yeah. What was that like through high school for you? Um, from what you can remember. Yeah. It, it, um, when, when, when people, especially the people that are listening to this podcast that, that, um, believe in self-development and having a growth mindset and achieving great things and all this kind of, you know, this is very, uh, this is a a very abundant type of mindset, right? Mm. But when you get medicine put on you, when you get drugs to limit your hyperactive brain, um, you just kind of feel dull. Um, You just, it's like they put the blinders on the horses in the on the horse carriage on the horse carriages. You don't see the periphery. You don't see to the left. You don't see to the right. You don't dream. Mm. And that's what I felt like my whole childhood. I was just doing the things, but I never dreamed. And I went off to college and they lowered my dose just a little bit, I think in half. So at that point, I was still taking more than the average human, but it was only half of what I had been used to since I was five. Do you know and why you got put on such a high dose from a, such a young age? Just what the doctors ordered. Uh, were they were they studying me? Maybe. Do they are they still studying me today? Maybe. I don't know. Mm. Um, you know, I ran into. Um, I had a I had a small I had a small uh class, a small grade, uh, only 30 I graduated with like 40 people. Mm-hmm. Uh the whole school only had like 200 people or something. Yeah, small island school. And um it was tiny. It was it was an island. And um and I ran into the mother of someone I graduated with but wasn't actually like close with like of course we're friendly or whatever we're in the same class but i never really hung out with her erica and erica used to uh the doctors used to tell erica's mom hey you should put erica on on the same medicine to which erica would reply to her mother 
Have you seen what the medicine's done to that poor kid, Chris? I'm not getting on that medicine. And that's the only thing her mom, Erica's mom, knows about me. I, I met her for the first time two weeks ago. And she said, oh, yeah, I don't know much about you other than the fact that the medicine, Erica said, screwed you up. Wow. And I was like, damn. Kids are smart. So, hey? Kids are onto it. Yeah. Very, very, uh, very observant people. Yeah. Uh, th- those people, especially Erica and Laurel and and Sally and all those those kind of folks. Anyway, so when I went away to college and they just kind of lowered the dosage just a little bit, I started to have a little bit more dreams. I started to act out. I started to cry out for attention, all these kind of things. And and that's when I started getting into a little bit of trouble. Um, you know, then then I would I would get into um uh legal trouble or school trouble or whatever it would be trouble. And eventually uh my school said uh my my school punished me a lot and eventually I was sent off to rehab. And it was it was um I mean, college was so funny. I was the captain of all these volunteer you know, philanthropy organizations. I was the president of my fraternity rush class, you know, pledge class. Um, but yet I, I skipped every class. I did extra drugs. I crashed my cars and I spent way too much money. It's mm. fucked up. And eventually push comes to shove. Um, I go away to rehab and I went away for, um, I, I went away for what I thought was going to be just like a couple weeks ended up being 11 and a half months. Wow. But the 31st day of rehab, like I checked into rehab with a 30 day medicine supply and on the 31st day of rehab, I'll never forget it. I was um, I was in a wilderness therapy program, you know, bring a bunch of kids into the middle of the woods, get them to walk from point A to point B to point C to point D and uh, have some counselors with them so that they can talk about sobriety or whatever. And on the 31st day, I get a note from one of the counselors and it said, no more medicine, cold turkey, just like that. And I haven't taken ADHD medicine ever since. Wow. How do you, do you feel way better for it now? Or do you think that some of those problems that did begin to occur in your life was from halving the dosage? Do you like regret going to half dosage? Or do you think that was just your kind of, chance as a young human to feel for the first time it feels like in life and actually understand the consequences of thinking a bit differently and thinking a bit clearer and yeah once you did stop taking um your medication and went cold turkey how's that experience because i've heard some very hard things from that but obviously you were there for another oh 10 and a half months. So there's probably some repercussions from that. How was that next part of your journey? 
Yeah, I mean, when you cold turkey a kid off a drug he's been on for 15 years, um, you know, your body has to detox from it. And so the detox was essentially me. They allowed me to essentially sit in a tent for four days alone. Um, you know, I, I pooped and peed two feet from where I slept. I would eat cold food. I couldn't, I couldn't find the energy to do anything because my, my body had produced, uh, uh, an, uh, unnatural form of, you know, uh, dopamine and, and serotonin and all those kind of things for so long. And so when they took it off me, um, you know, I just kind of lay comatose there for a little bit, but then eventually I got over it and I continue with my rehab programs and still I failed every rehab program I went to because I kept breaking the rules and I kept defying authority and all these kind of things. But you ask, do I regret um, how they did it? Do I regret that they took me to half dosage? Do I regret being on it for 15 years? I look back and I don't regret a single moment of my life. Because I've been able to use gratitude to find the positive benefits and even the most dire negative circumstances in my life. Mm. Um, because I know what it feels like to be, well, literally neurologically repressed, emotionally repressed, sexually repressed dreaming repressed now that i'm operating without any drugs in my body at all i'm living on hyperdrive mm. i am living and filtering every damn decision in my life through the lens of does this make me a good human or not mm. that's it just like you I love that you bring it up like that because that's kind of the basis of where the good human factory stemmed from was this idea of, and now I know it's just our morals and our values, that little voice inside of your head that tells you if you're being a good human or not, that's like, ah, oh, it's that intuition, mm -hmm. that feeling you get when you're not doing something that aligns with your values and what seems right to you. And that's kind of that inner good human in all of us, which, yeah, uh, this will be a good segue. Your most recent book, Gratitude Through Hard Times, it's a, did you say New York Times bestseller? It's uh, what, well, uh, number one Wall Street Journal, number uh, one Wall bestseller. Street yeah. Wow. So amazing book. That one's just out. I will leave it in the show notes, but do you want to explain the basis of that book? Because obviously, what you just spoke about, not having any regrets, it, looking back with gratitudes, important even through hard times. What's the mm -hmm. basis of that book? And yeah, maybe give us a quick elevator pitch of what's in that book and why it's so important yeah. to you. I'll tell you a story of um I'll tell you a story um about the book in my life. I was It was Thursday, December 30th, 2021. 8 months ago. And I was 
professionally on top of my game. If you looked at my life on Thursday, December 30th, 2021, you would have seen a guy with a good company, with great friends, with positive accolades, the respect of his peers, ton of great clients. Life was looking pretty good. I just bought a home, my partner. She just got a new job. Things were looking up. At 4.30 p.m. on that day, I was on a phone call with my uh, with one of my clients, Lisa Penn, from a great American company, SAP. And halfway through the phone call, she looks at me and she says, Chris, you don't look so good. You kind of look worn out. Maybe we should end our call early and you can go take a nap or something. It's like, all right, this is the first time a client's ever told me to go take a nap, but let's do it. She she knew something was up. Mm -hmm. I said, let's do it. So we hung up the call. I sat down to meditate and I woke up like an hour later. My partner, Molly, was just getting off work. We're looking at each other and saying, hey. Uh, you're flying home to be with your family tomorrow morning for New Year's Eve. I'm staying here in the city. Why don't we go out to dinner? We got a lot to celebrate. Her got a new job. We bought a new home. I had a great year. So we went out to Lure Fish Bar in Soho, New York City. And I drank a lot. A lot of people that we didn't know, kept buying us Clasa Azul tequila shots uh, or tequila drinks, etc. And I said some flirty comments to people around us, embarrassed Molly, got in a cab, came home, we got in a fight. I felt like the biggest piece of shit in the world. I judged myself. I judged the situation. I judged Molly for not understanding that I meant none of it with my comments. But I felt like a monster. I felt more alone than I'd ever felt in my whole life. And I marched into the kitchen and I took out a kitchen knife and I held out my arm and I cut it the whole way around. And I cut my arm so deep that had it been two millimeters to the left, Cooper, I wouldn't be here right now. I would not be alive. And scared the shit out of Molly, scared the shit out of me. We went to bed. She got in an airplane the next morning to go home to see her parents. And that left me alone in New York City for six days. And the first couple of days, I fucking cried. I would look at a a movie and cry. I I would eat a lemon, a fruit, and I would cry. I would look outside my apartment and I would cry. And pretty soon, I picked up the phone and I called my best friend, Scott. I said, Scott, what's wrong with me? He said, nothing's wrong with you, Chris. 
you've just got so many things going on good in your life, but you can't see the clearing through the forest. You appreciate none of it. I said, appreciate none of it. What do you mean? But, but I'm the gratitude guru. Mm. Gratitude's my thing, man. And I said, holy crap, Scott, I got to go. And I hung up the phone and I started writing. And what I realized is that even though gratitude is my shtick, mm. I had in that moment become an ungrateful man. And it almost ended my entire life. Wow. That's far out. Thank you for sharing that story, man. I'm glad you're here. It's so powerful to, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think how to not say this sort of next question without coming from it in a place of not caring, but what was there any other suicidal ideations in your mind before this, or was it just this split second and was so, it an attempt at your life, do you think? Or was it a cry for desperation cry, or attention? Or yeah. Cry yeah. cry for help. I'm glad you are knowledgeable enough to ask that. Um for all the people listening, I had what's called a non-suicidal self-injury mm. episode. I am not suicidal, but it was a cry out for help, and I didn't know any other way to cry. Um, I've been a cutter, a burner, a self-injurer, a, a puncher, a knuckle scratcher, whatever, my whole life. If you're listening to this, you probably know some of these people. You've probably seen a friend or two show up at school or show up at the office with bloody knuckles or maybe a little bit of a cut or maybe a burn on their arm. That's not accidental. They are crying out for your help. Mm. And so this non-suicidal self-injury is not an attempt to um, end one's life. Um, I am not qualified to talk about suicidal ideation. Uh, I encourage you to, to please call a hotline if this episode has triggered you. All I can say is my, my own story with NSSI, as it's called. and. You know, I I sat there and I started writing what became the 39-page introduction of my book. I said that story right there. Mm. And it gave a book that we had been writing for the previous 15 months an actual direction. Because here's what I found. To be a grateful man or an ungrateful man to live in a life of gratitude or suffer from the plague of ingratitude is nothing new throughout the history of humanity many men and women have fallen prey to ingratitude it's our belief that our mind works in many mysterious ways but it, it could either be your friend or it could be your enemy if your brain is acting as your enemy, you look at the world from a lens of anxiety, overwhelm, guilt, shame, victim. regret, victim, 
overwhelm, entitlement, whatever, negative things. I call that, well, I don't call that. Many people would call that living in a state of ingratitude. To live in a state of gratitude is to look at the world through curiosity and empathy and connection and engagement and wisdom and inspiration and all these great things. And what I realized after my non-suicidal self-injury episode is that in order to have monumental shifts occur in my life, it didn't, it didn't require me changing anything in my life except my perspective, mm. my attitude. I didn't have to quit my job. I didn't have to dump my girlfriend. I didn't have to sell my home. I didn't have to get rid of my fancy toys. I just had to start living in a state of gratitude instead of being held up by a plague of ingratitude. Mm. I love that. I got told this all the time as I was a kid and my dad always said to me, appreciation, not expectation. Wow. And I feel like just that plague that you're talking about is that expectation that I am owed something from the world. Like I'll mm. only do good for somebody if they're going to do good back for me. It's a place of lack. Mm. It's a place of yeah expectation rather than appreciation, which obviously is just gratitude. But I want to get to know now we kind of got this new story and thank you so much for sharing that, by the way, it takes a lot of strength and, courage to share a story that open and vulnerable but i want to rewind now back to where your business 747 came from and tell me that next journey post um, rehab how gratitude became something that you became so passionate about and yeah how you built a business underneath it yeah love that great question um so i was in rehab failing spectacularly when you say going to rehab if you don't mind asking was it like alcohol drug abuse was there whatever just at rehab uh, to yeah. get yourself uh, yeah. just chris chris you're messed up dude yeah. get your life straight yeah need some help and um and so alcoholics anonymous was the program that i would go to yeah i had to step in front of a meeting every day and say hi my name's chris i'm an alcoholic and I'd cringe on the inside saying, no, I just, I hate myself. And alcohol is just a symptom. Mm. I'm not an alcoholic. I just hate myself. <laughs> um, so, um, or, or I'm, I'm learning how to use these new uh, creativity and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I don't know yeah. what I was. Um, so I get kicked out of rehab. <laughs> I get kicked out of rehab. By that point, I was living in Los, Los Angeles and uh, failing spectacularly. And I get shipped back to Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, as a 21, 21-year-old kid. And I'm sitting there going, well, now what, I'm, what, now what am I going to do? So I go to work as a uh, kayak tour guide. Uh, leading groups on nature adventures in kayaks around our island for my friend Mike's company outside Hilton Head, one of the one of the great 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 companies. Um, 
And I loved it. My God, I got to tell stories. I got to meet cool people. I got to learn their names. I got to play in the mud. I got to make some money. I got to live at home on the beach. It was great. And then, um, so I did that for the summer of 2009. And then at the end of 2009, I shipped off to go live on a glacier um, at the tip of the world in Patagonia, South America. Hmm. So I did that for a bunch of months with the National Outdoor Leadership School. And by the time I got back to America, I wanted to become a boat captain. So I got my captain's license and now I was driving people around boats around the island and I did all these things. And then by the time summer of 2010 came around, I said, all right, I'm done driving boats. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll uh, um, start my own company. And so I kept driving boats, but then I also started my own company, my two buddies, Andrew and Eric. And we started doing some entrepreneurial things. None of it really made money, but we were living at home with our parents. We were making a couple bucks. We were having a good time. And pretty soon, this person, this woman, who's kind of like a grandmother figure to me, said, Chris, you're starting to outgrow Hilton Head Island. I think it's time for you to set your sights on the big city, New York City. (laughs) And I said, all right. I mean, she, I mean, she was like a grandmother figure to me. She told me that in May of 2011. All I've been doing since rehab is driving boats, kayaking and living on an iceberg. That's it. And she told me in May of 2011 to move to New York City. I moved to New York City on Thursday, August 31st, 2011, my 24th birthday. And I moved with no job, no college degree, one suitcase, living on my buddy's couch in Brooklyn, not knowing what I was going to do. I called up my dad one day and I said, Hey, dad, I, I think I want to be an actor. And he's like, well, uh, I, I don't know what that means. Here, let me give you the number of my friend, Tony. He used to be a famous actor. Maybe he'll let you come over and ask him questions about the business. Because he was 74. I was 24. He was kind of retired. So I ended up meeting Tony, running his company for five years. We started producing plays. Off-Broadway plays, Broadway plays, touring plays, all these kind of things. We were like butt buddies. We were like the odd couple. He was 74. I was 24. We'd go out every night. We'd meet great people. We'd sell them tickets to our play, and we'd have a good time. And it took us all over the world. It was fun. Mm -hmm. But to get back to your original question, one day, July of 2015, I just come back from producing a a Broadway play over in Rome, Italy. It was amazing. It was Rome. We had carte blanche to the whole city. We were there with the right people. And boy, Rome really made me feel alive. I mean, they eat different and they talk different and they love different and they honor history different. And I was driving around with with they gave me a driver. Uh, Marcello, and I was driving around with him and his daughter 
was the executive assistant of the head promoter of our play in Rome. And I said, how does your daughter, Alessandra, like working for the main man, Gianni? And he says in his broken English, hey, he, uh, she like uh, working for Gianni, but uh, uh, she's living another man's dream. So I am sad. I said, huh, she's living another man's dream. And that makes her father sad. And I got back to New York City and I said, my God, I'm living another man's dream. Me, 28, now in my prime, am sitting around helping a 78-year-old retired man accomplish more of his dreams. It's time for me to do something. And I thought, what was it about Italy that made me feel so alive? It's how they ate food amongst community. And I said, I got to do some of that here in New York to really come alive. So I invented my own pasta sauce recipe. Some of you listeners are going to laugh right about now, but it was pretty good. But I figured I should probably feed it to people to see if it was good or not good. And that's when it all began, Cooper. July 15th, 2015, I invited 15 of my friends over to my house for dinner. The rule was, bring your own bottle of wine. And when you showed up, we're all going to work together to create the meal. See, at that very first dinner, arrivals were at 6.30. Dinner was at 8. But at 7.47 p.m., now the name of my company, we put the pasta in the pot and delegated 11 specific tasks to empower the attendees to actually work together to create the meal. They felt connected and safe and, and open and, and like a part of the process. And so by the time we got down, you know, just sitting down to dinner and, and drank some good wine and ate some decent pasta sauce, then I looked at the table. And I asked a question, simple question. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, that you've never thought to thank, who would that be? Not what are you grateful for? Who have you never thought to thank? And these people around this dinner table, Cooper, they reached way back in their past and they pulled forth some amazing stories. I'll never forget it. Some of them talked about having never thanked their mom before their mom passed away. Some of them talked about never thanked their third grade teacher. Some of them had never thanked their wife that was sitting at the dinner table with them. The stories were real. And I said, Gosh, dang it. That's what I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to. And that was a couple of years ago, and we haven't looked back ever since. Man, goosebumps hearing that. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, you're a phenomenal storyteller. If you, As well, anyone listening to this, make sure you type in um, Chris Shembrad TED Talk because your TED Talks, you're very good at storytelling. And just hearing the inception and the catalyst for 747 beginning is really special. So 
that idea came about making pasta. Let's talk about gratitude and pasta sauce then. Is that kind of the basis of your first book? That was um also yeah. a bestseller, yeah? Yeah, so what, what had happened was, you know, we um, we were hosting these dinner parties in our home. And folks, I'm... You, if you're watching, we, we got to put this YouTube. We got to put this video on YouTube or something too, because these yeah. these folks got to see you and your action. <laughs> you're such a genius at what you do. But if you're looking at this on video, you'll see I'm sitting in a room that's now my office. This is what the size of our living room used to be in my first apartment in New York City. We fit 20 people mm. in that apartment every week, once a week, for free, in our home, cooking them pasta. That's how it all began. Mm. And the rule was, and any any of you out there listening can recreate this model in Australia. Any of you. The rule was the first time you come to the dinner, you come alone. Can't bring anybody. Second time you come, you can bring a friend or a spouse or a partner or a client or whatever. And then after that, I want you to think about nominating someone awesome in your network that can come but you can't come to the dinner. They have to come, just them. Wow. And so this thing gonna, just kept I'm gonna on. I'm going to start this at my house. You're going to send me like you a got to. for these dinners. You I, got to. I, I love you bring that up because I always say to my friends, and I do this pretty often, is like I love cooking dinner for people. I love like the idea of everyone, and when someone else is cooking dinner, standing around dinner and no phones, yeah. just being part of the process yeah. because I think it biologically has – it just feels right. There's something in there that just feels right being around cooking. And I think it comes back to biologically as humans for far more years than we've been sitting around looking at our phones and the TV at dinner table, we've been sitting around a fire and cooking together. And for millions of years been doing that, well, thousands of years been doing that. Whereas for only the last 20 or 40 years of humans looked at a TV in the background. Yep. So that's why I feel like there is, it, something very special in what you're doing at a biological level but yeah what i mean i'm going to try and start doing that because i do that as well and i do try and do like oh what's three things you're grateful for today but i love this idea of think of someone in your life and tell us why you're grateful for them and, and it's a powerful thing it's a really powerful thing it's um uh, i'm glad you see the value in all of this i can promise you if you or if you're listening uh start these up you will find I mean, it was it, it was like weeks into hosting our dinners and all of a sudden people would be knocking. We'd have Super Bowl champions knocking on our door saying, hey, I heard you're having dinner. Can I come to dinner? I'd be like, <laughs> well, I can't say no now. You'd have Academy Award winners and Fortune 50 CEOs. And all these people were coming saying, dude, I heard everybody cries at these dinners. All I want to do is feel human. Please let me feel that way. Mm. And we said, holy crap, this is a this is a big, this is a big, big, big thing. And so eventually a lot of those people that were coming to the dinner table were CEOs, they were founders, they were, you know, good influential people. And and, and they picked up the phone and said, Chris, look, we got a thousand employees, or I got 20 of my best clients. I just Come help me engage them. Come do this. And that's when it became a company. Yeah. And so for the next four years, we traveled around the world producing, I mean, the most high level. And when I say high level, it was the cheapest production value. 
It was paper bowls and pasta sauce. But everybody cried. And when you can cry with your clients or you can create emotional, psychological safety amongst your team, phenomenal things occur. Our clients have gone on to make hundreds of millions in net new revenue around our dinner table by making their clients cry. It's amazing. It's amazing. Companies have been formed around the dinner table. So we decided to write a book to say, here's how you can do it in your own life. And that was what gratitude and pasta, the secret sauce for human connection was. And Forbes called it, you know, the number two book of the year to create human connection. Um, You know, it was all about how you, and if you're listening, how you can literally leave this podcast, get that book. I'll send it to you for free for damn sake. I don't care. However, we get (laughs) your hands. I'll leave it in the show notes. And maybe we'll have a good discount code for people to grab it. Just, just, you go off and host a dinner party. That's it. Mm. It'll teach you how to do that. And I promise you, your entire life will change. I promise. I've mm. seen it. I've seen it. Um, but the funny thing about Gratitude and Pasta, the book, is that it was launched April 7th, 2020, the beginning of the pandemic. Oh. And so a book about how to host an in-person dinner uh, kind of became irrelevant. Mm. <laughs> it was so funny. But uh, we ended up bringing the principles behind those pasta dinners online and invented virtual gratitude experiences and honestly, Cooper, that's when our company really took off. Yeah. Really took off. So you started hosting kind of virtual experiences with your clients because obviously in person's hard and the e-learning models obviously <clears throat> obviously great. And when you're working from your bedroom and um yeah, having such a strong product as in a virtual product like yours with this virtual learning what were the principles and what are the principles that you do talk about with your clients that maybe the listeners might get just kind of elevator kind of, yeah. What are, what are a few of the key points that you talk about that are just easy takeaways for people? It's um, without giving away too many of your secrets. (laughs) No, essentially. And, and, and the story leading up into this is, um, you know, the, the minute that, that we published or the minute that I had the first book of gratitude and pasta, um, like in our hands leading up to launch, the minute I had it in my hands, I said, Dad, we got to go to Italy. Ooh, I, I, I got to show Italy what she inspired in me. And so I showed Italy my book and I showed Italy my dad. And we said, wow, this, this is great. And, and all of a sudden we uh, receive a phone call when we're walking around Bologna and our my girlfriend and and my mom are saying, you got to get back to America. There's this COVID thing that's happening. And we're like, whatever, whatever. So we get home from Italy and we are the first people to go into lockdown. We had to mandatorily go into our own little two week quarantine. And then the rest of the world shut down. And so we're sitting there feeling the same feelings that I felt back in 2015 
lonely, unfulfilled, disconnected, insecure. Italy had made me come alive. I got back to New York and was like, oh, shit. COVID's just ripped away everything that I have. The dinner table, all my clients, our book tour, gratitude. I'm fucked. Mm. <laughs> I'm screwed. Mm. Every client canceled except one. You know, so we we're starting off on I filed for unemployment. Wow. I'm not ashamed to say that we had to furlough our employees and I filed for unemployment because we had sunk all our cash into our book launch. We went out to a I remember early in the pandemic, we went out to a place to get a to go drink. I couldn't pay for the drink. My best friend Scott had to buy us drinks at this place. I felt so much shame and I was sitting there and I'm like. My God, you selfish, entitled piece of crap. You're probably not the only one in the world, or at least your friend group, who feels like a complete piece of garbage right now. Lonely, unfulfilled, disconnected, insecure, nervous, cautious, anxious, overwhelmed. You may not have the dinner table. You may not have the pasta sauce. But you still got that signature gratitude question. So we decided to host a virtual gratitude experience. And we hosted one every night for the first, I think, four months of the pandemic. Wow. 50 to 100 friends came every night to cry, to meet. We'd use the breakout groups. We'd use the group chat. There was, it was highly interactive. And what we actually found is that it was more intimate than an in-person dinner. Because at an in-person 18, you know, at an in-person 18-person pasta dinner, you kind of like couldn't really have an intimate moment. Like you you were sharing around the dinner table, but you were one of 18 people sharing. So your share was like this quick. But with breakout groups, we could split people up into two and three person groups and leave them there for 15 minutes. Mm. And they went deep. And so, again, a lot of the people that we're inviting to those first free virtual gratitude experiences were founders and CEOs and previous clients. And soon the phone started ringing. And our clients were essentially saying, look, our employees are remote, disconnected. Lonely, overwhelmed, nervous, cautious, anxious, tired, completely apprehensive, demotivated, stagnant, disconnected from our culture. We need to do something about that quick. And so we started selling them to companies for team building purposes. And Cooper, what we found is that within our signature, our 90-minute signature virtual gratitude experience where our clients can bring anything from 25 people to 150 people across multiple time zones at the same time. We have a 99.998% success rate guaranteeing a positive emotional transformation amongst the attendees. We have the data. They come in feeling overwhelmed, nervous, cautious, anxious, they leave grateful, connected, inspired, happy, wiser, lighter. It's amazing. Okay. And then they have the testimonials on the back end of what the experience meant to them. 
And then we got to go back into our clients and say, these were the takeaways from your employees. What experience should we do next? So then we got to sell entire year-long programs without leaving the comfort of this office. Wow. There's two parts of this story that I love. The first one, and you might not have even thought of this, but it's, it sounds like you learned how to be vulnerable in this group environment for your bit. I mean, for your um, pasta dinners, maybe through like Alcoholics Anonymous and being able to be vulnerable and share in those circles. That's one thing that I wanted to start with. And I can see you nodding other people who are listening can't hear that. But the second part is this idea that both times of these incredible ideas coming about they started from a place of doing it for free and a place of just Mm -hmm. giving and a place of I'm doing this because I need it and the people around me need it. And then businesses came from it. Whereas so often people come at something from a business point of view, like, all right, I need to make money from this first. Whereas yours was, Hey, I just want to help my friends and have these dinner parties because I saw what it did for people in Italy. Phase two, Hey, we're struggling in lockdown. Let's start these gratitude things. Boom. Another business opportunity. So I think people listening might, or should be able to get something out of your story in the way that if you just passionately do things and do them without the expectation, there you go. Appreciation, not expectation without the expectation of getting anything in return financially, whatever, then good things quite often come from Mm -hmm. it. There's a great book about this. It's called Give and Take by Adam Grant. Adam Grant is a thought leader here in America. He's one of the most popular professors in America. He teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Business, a big Ivy League, great American university. And he did a study of like 2,600 sales professionals to study what made them successful. Were they ultimately a giver, a taker, or someone who reciprocates a matcher? And what he found was that the takers, yeah, they could be successful, um, but they usually just like over time wore the shit out of those around them. And so ultimately over time, They became unsuccessful. The matchers did a little bit better because they knew how to give and how to take. They knew how to ask for what they want. But it was the givers who were the most successful because they went out and gave. They gave freely and strategically, right? Notice I didn't say that we were inviting school teachers and people who couldn't afford our services to these free experiences. We were inviting founders and CEOs. It was free, but we knew who to invite. Mm. But the givers would ultimately become the most successful people as part of that study. And we liken it to something we call the network effect. A matcher, someone who gives in order to then ask someone who is like keeping track of how many favors he's done so that he can ask for favors back. He can only keep track of so many favors, but a person who gives, gives freely to a broader list of people. And the network effect is such that all it takes is one person out of that network to come back around full circle and just like buy something that pays for their entire year. Mm. 
That's it. Mm, it's giving. Smart. It's and that's what I'm. I'm very passionate. And I love it the way you articulated the idea, like giving freely but smartly. And I mean, I give a lot of good stuff away with the good human factor for free, and have like a one percent club, but. You, I mean, it's a Gary V model kind of just give, give, give. And like you said, something will come full circle and come back and help yeah. you. Whereas if you're giving and keeping score and expecting something in return, it's not really giving, it's a transaction. We, um, we know that the best bang for the buck of impact that I can have in this world, and the bang for the buck dollar amount our company can earn both are situated well actually that's a whole nother story i'll get there in a sec are are situated in our virtual gratitude experiences that sell for a lot of money don't take up a lot of time have tremendous impact and change lives so i know i can donate one of those to a potential client or customer or just someone i'm trying to get to know knowing that the odds of them buying because they've had such a good time have just increased mm. tenfold, right? In the same amount of time that it takes for me to go on a coffee date with someone, I can donate my own product and service, impact a hundred of their employees and make them say, oh my God, I need more of that. Mm. This is awesome. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Oh, it's great. That's so where you need to have um, the confidence in your service that it has an impact, whereas you've gathered the data. And it's very similar to the workshops I run. I take feedback and data from every workshop and overwhelmingly positive response because there's so, I think just people are willing to have their mind open to this stuff, but they need somebody who's passionate enough and has the experience to lead them in the right direction because it's not new gratitude. It's been around in stoicism for thousands of years. Mm-hmm, yeah. But it's almost being lost because of capitalism, I feel like, because there's like, you need this to be happy. You need that to be happy. No, you just need to look back and feel what makes you already happy. It, here's, um, here's a good study that, um, that your folks can do on the call. If you go to Amazon, which is an internet website, you got Amazon, right? We got Amazon. The okay. whole got so, Amazon. Come so, on. So, <laughs> um, if you've got, oh my God, I feel so embarrassed. We're not um, that far away you, on this little island we call Australia. If you go to Amazon, and my buddy Joey Coleman did this research, if you go to Amazon and you type in sales, marketing, customer, um, you know, customer, uh, you know, uh, winning, whatever, I can't think of words. Um, it's like a million books will pop up on how to get that customer, on how to acquire that customer. But if you type in loyalty, retention, appreciation, it's like 40,000 books pop up. So for every 40 book on sales, there's only one book written on how to keep, loyal, retain, treat, write, appreciate a mm. customer. And Joey says that um, that we're missing a huge, huge, huge opportunity in appreciating, recognizing, and retaining our top customers, our top talent. Loyalty is cheaper than acquisition. And so to be in the gratitude business, 
is is not just a woo woo. Hey, it's going to make you feel good. It's like if you actually give a crap about the people who put food on your dinner table, you should appreciate them. You should recognize them, knowing that when you give them that appreciation, they're going to talk about you more. They're going to buy more. They're going to demonstrate more loyalty. It's just mm. cold, hard facts. I'll tell you a story for your listeners. I remember one day I, we pulled into uh, to, to London uh, to sit down on a houseboat on the River Thames underneath the Tower Bridge, and we were putting on a whole week's worth of dinners for this one client, my good buddy Patrick Bosworth. And he's this big industry influencer in the travel space, and he was keynoting this huge conference in London. And so he said, Chris, meet me in London. Let's host a bunch of dinner parties for his clients, for his partners, for his investors, for his friends, for his teams, everything, all different nights. And boy, every night, every morning, I'd wake up and I'd get on the bike and I'd go to Borough Market, this ancient 1100-year-old food, uh, cheese, meat, wine market in London. And I'd get the stuff and I'd come back and I'd cook all day and the people would arrive and work together to create the meal. And we'd have some great group discussion. And we really came alive on that river underneath the Tower Bridge. But this one night, there was this guy. And he came to that dinner, and I just could tell he did not want to be at this dinner. That his boss made him come, and he was all curmudgeon, frumpy, wumpy. And it came to the point in the evening when I asked our signature gratitude question. I said, "Hey, sir, you know if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life, you've." You don't give enough credit or thanks to that you've never thought to thank. Who would that be? He started crying. He said, I've honestly never thought to thank my wife. And he went on for five minutes thanking his wife, crying the entire time. If you look at the group photo of that night, he's the only one actually like in exuberant celebration, raising his fist during the group photo. And he goes up to my client, Patrick, the next day at the conference and says, Patrick, I was an enemy of renewing this deal with you. But I went to that dinner party, and now I consider you family. Count us in for the next four years. Wow. That was a $600,000 a year contract. Or four four hundred thousand dollar a year contract, one point six million dollar, um, re-signing retention loyalty kind of thing. This is just one of hundreds of stories of when you create the space for gratitude, and you can help the people you love around you shift into a positive mental attitude, and give them the space to tell some amazing stories. Wow. They will be your biggest cheerleader you could have never imagined. That's it. It's all it takes. Yeah, you speak about it just so well. And it's a little different angle maybe than I use, not use with gratitude because I mine's really focused on this, like bringing daily gratitude into our life. And I love that yours is about this, like special moments of gratitude parties and gratitude as a, um, yeah, workshop and stuff. What sort of advice, this will kind of be the second last question, ask you, what sort of advice do you give to people to build gratitude as a daily mindset? 
Great question. The word you were looking for, that I'm going to educate your audience on when you, when you said that we believe in gratitude as a, a workshop, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we call it a micro intervention. Mm. Uh, well, positive psychology calls it a micro intervention. Um, and it's the ability to be going on through your life and then have something intervene, change the mindset, improve positive mental attitude, and go from there. And we're really good at these like two hour long micro interventions. We're really, 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 really good at those. Um, how do we help people develop a daily habit for it? I don't know. Because I think, I personally believe, and I could be wrong, what I found is the minute you make something a habit, the minute you make it automatic, the minute you make something um, a need to do instead of a want to do, it stops having its impact on you. Then it becomes mm. a chore, a task. And so what I'd rather teach people is how to authentically look for the benefits they've received in their life from others and to give that gratitude authentically when they need to. Mm. You may not receive a benefit from someone or think of a benefit from someone for 15 days. Well, then you haven't practiced gratitude for 15 days. But then all of a sudden you get this groundswell in your body and you're like, oh my God, my third grade teacher, Miss Carson, she didn't judge me for listening to InSync on my CD player. And she's always been a great role model. She taught me how to play from a very, wow, now I get it. Man, I've treated her like shit for 20 years. And all these things pop up in the moment. So mm. I'd rather people practice that. Yeah. And build a daily habit. Yeah. I don't know. I could be no, wrong. No, no I like um, that. Because the way I talk about it is just to try and find things during your day to sort of <clears> rejog <throat> you when you're having a bad day and go, oh, today was terrible. It's like, oh, well, I did eat something that was quite nice. Or, oh, you know what? Like, I did get a compliment from it. I had a conversation that was nice at work. So I think, but I love what you said there because it's shifting from this mindset of I have to do gratitude to feel good to I get to do gratitude to feel yeah. good. Just the, the changing um, of language can mean so much. My, um, th there's, there's, um, <clears throat> there's two types of gratitude. You can either use gratitude to reinforce a positive, give mm -hmm. gratitude to something good. I'm grateful for my home. I'm grateful. Uh, well, <laughs> we also say to be grateful is to be grateful to someone. I'm grateful to uh, Mary for selling us the home and choosing us uh, mm -hmm. to be its its next inhabitants. I'm grateful. <clears throat> These are positive things. But gratitude can also be shared for the negative. And I think that's actually the best use case of gratitude um so take my non-suicidal self-injury episode from december 30th 2021 
one could look at that episode and say, holy shit, you almost killed yourself. That's like the worst thing that a human being could literally ever do. Mm-hmm. Literally. He's almost killed himself. That's it. Um, that should probably fuck you up, right, man? Like, you probably got a lot out of trauma because of that thing. You're probably like, you're going to be dwelling on that thing forever. But here's what I did. We invented something called the Positive Benefits Checklist. It's an 11-part sheet. It's an 11-part checklist to help you determine if you can find positive benefits through a negative autobiographical experience. And this checklist was the culmination of research that was done by Philip Watkins at Eastern Washington University. Is the culmination of another study, another study, another groundbreaking things in positive psychology. It's called Benefit Finding, and we write about it in our new book. And this 11-part checklist is meant to have you look at any event in your life. And if you're listening to this, I want you to take a pause. And I want you to think about a moment of adversity that you've overcome in your own life. Think about it for a sec. Cooper, what would that moment be for you? For me, and I speak about this a little bit, and when I was about 23, I got told by like my major sponsor who funded my whole surfing career that I'm not good enough and it's time to give it up. And I had to basically... 22 years old when I based all my self-worth and identity on being a pro surfer, make the decision to go and work a full-time job to fund my career rather than have a sponsor to continue to do it. And that, yeah, that was for me something that looking back was a big turning point in my life and adversity to overcome getting told that, Hey, you're not good enough to chase the dream that you've chased your whole life. Mm, You're not good enough, Cooper. That that must have been, I mean, you, you probably let down a lot of friends. Mm. Uh, you know, you told them you'd go pro, but you didn't go pro. You weren't good enough, Cooper. How did that feel to, to hear that? Deflating, disappointing. Deflating. Out of your control, deflating, disappointing. Maybe it made you regret certain things along your path. Maybe it brought you shame. Maybe it brought you guilt, embarrassment. Folks, if you're listening to this, this is Cooper being real, open, and vulnerable about a very pivotal moment in his life. If you're listening to this, maybe it's your mother dying. Maybe it's your boyfriend cheating on you. Maybe it's you losing that dream job. Maybe it's you being in a car wreck. Think about that. Now, Cooper, I'd like to ask you a series of 11 questions on my positive benefits checklist. Do I have your permission to do that? Let's go. Being told you weren't good enough, ending your pro surfing career, and having to find a job on your own, did it teach you empathy? Yes. For what? 
taught me empathy for myself and because I learned that it's kind of hard to explain, but I learned that everybody I it made me look at other people's stories a lot more and realize how good I did have it and go, yeah. Oh, you know what? Like be grateful for what I had rather than what I don't have now. And that sent me on a path of, yeah, I, I had empathy mm. for other people who didn't have the opportunity that I had before I got let down. That makes sense. It does. It sounds like it taught you appreciation as well. Mm, absolutely. Tell me, uh, what, that was the second question. Yeah. Tell me, number three, did it teach you acceptance? Absolutely. That How? things are going to, well, it just told me that things are going to change and we have to keep moving forward either way. Did it help bring your family closer together or did it drive them apart? I think for me, maybe a bit closer together. I think it just sort of brought my family into supporting me through that time a bit more. Supporting you a bit. Put a yes for that. Yeah. Did it give you a community to connect closer together to? A support group or people who really came out of the woodwork to support? Did any of that happen? I think for me, it just because I didn't quit my surfing career, I went into jobs to fund my career. So it put me in working environments with a lot of other people to show that we all have different lives. And yeah, put me just into the normality of life. So it felt like, yeah, I had more people around me who, yeah, were going mm -hmm. through the same sort of stuff. Mm. So I'm going to put a yes to that. Did it give you a greater faith in people? Yes. At, yeah. To certain people, the people who obviously said I wasn't good enough, it made me quite disappointed, but it also taught me to drop ego and be like, Oh, you know, I, I had a lot of understanding in the decision they had to make as well. So yeah, I think it made me realize that, Hey, people are going to make big decisions that are bad outcomes for me, but that's going to happen as well. Mm. Did it teach you compassion? Absolutely. I think that's kind of what I was just talking about, compassion yeah. for the decision someone else had to make. Did it give you a positive self-view and self-confidence or self-efficacy needed to get through further trying times? Yeah, at the start, like the opposite, when you first get told, there kind of comes that feeling of self so like worthlessness and shame and guilt and oh, they don't think I'm good enough. It's why, like, what have I done wrong? But then I think as it sort of comes through acceptance, sorry, I kind of forgot the question, but I think it was about this idea of, wait, what was the question? Sorry. Po positive self-view, yeah. self-confidence, self-efficacy. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like as the journey sort of went on sort of three to six months after that decision kind of was made, I began to, realize that hey i don't have to base my whole identity around my surfing career there's a lot more to me than just my surfing mm. whereas if that decision mm -hmm. didn't get made in my early 20s i probably would have carried the ego and the expectation of sponsorship later into my 20s and probably left me in a worse position when the sort of decision would have been made by now anyway mm. did it inspire a lifestyle change absolutely well, i started working a full-time job and 
began to be appreciative of the traveling that I still got to do. Hmm. Did it give you any material gain? Mm, not necessarily, but it taught me that I have to work more. <laughs> You're all right to say no to that. Yeah. Cooper, you just said yes to 10 out of the 11 things that I answered, that I asked you. It sounds like you not getting that sponsorship has had more positive than negative things uh, uh, impact on your life in the years since it's happened. Very true. So with that being said, you can essentially say you are grateful that you never got the sponsorship to become that pro surfer because it taught you empathy, appreciation, acceptance, compassion, Mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When we can give gratitude the negative autobiographical experiences in our life and the positive benefits it's created over time. That's the ultimate form of healing. Wow. That's so powerful, man. I'm sure so many people would have been listening to that and relating it to their stories. And yeah, man, this has been such a cool conversation. It's gone on so many paths and I'm really appreciative of you sharing so much of your story so openly and letting the listeners into your mind and, I think there's going to be quite a few gratitude and pasta dinner parties happening over here in Australia. <laughs> um, well, we... It's something I'm going to do because it's something I try and do. I sit around and tell people, all right, let's do um, three things we're grateful for sitting around the dinner table. And we've spoken about this on this podcast with certain guests before who do the same, but I love your take on it. And I think, yeah, we'll try and get that gratitude and pasta book to as many people as possible. Um, you were saying before that you're going to send me both of them, which I'm really excited to read. And I'll do a bit of a review on one of my shorter form podcasts because it just, yeah, I love when you get told something that just seems so simple and it's, <laughs> and it's very achievable for everybody listening, but it takes a bit of responsibility. It takes picking up the phone and going, Hey, I'm doing something a bit different to 10 of my friends. Can you guys come over? bring a bottle of wine. I'm going to cook everyone dinner, but there's no phones. I mean, I want to read your book to see how you set it up, but I think it's something that's so achievable and you've shown can have such a profound impact. Um, yeah. On those around us. As, as someone who, I mean, I am, um, I'm the, the ripe elder old age of 34 right now on this podcast. I was 28 when I started these dinners. I was your age. Mm. And what I can promise you and, you know, the, 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 the folks that are listening uh, at, at your own young age, I can promise you if you start these principles and you start hosting these dinners and you start gathering people in meaningful ways now, mm. you are in for a world of blessings. Um, the only person I can point to to prove that uh, would be myself. I've been very privileged uh, and and have achieved a tremendous amount of blessings from really dear friends through this process. And um, it all starts with gratitude. It all starts with bringing good people together. And uh, the, look, the playbook is out there. If you're, uh, look, if you're listening to this and, um, and, and 
you know, you agree with anything that we said here today, I, I want you to go out and act on it. The first thing that you can do is literally figure out what date you're listening to this podcast. Pick a date six weeks from the future, likely on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday night. That's going to be your first dinner. We'll figure out the details backwards from there like the invite materials and the menu and the who and the where and all that shit. First, pick a date because people don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. Just putting mm. it on the calendar is the first start. Love that. There's just so much to um, take away from this episode. And I know I'm going to take a lot away from it. And yeah, excited to read your <laughs> books. Excited to hopefully chat to you more and collaborate and learn from you around gratitude because I feel like we can both uh yeah share some great things with each other and if you're over ever over in australia make sure you come catch up i'll take you for a little surf lesson i'm sure everyone yeah, from america always goes, yeah let's daniel daniel and asha and i are uh meeting next week to to talk about some of those australia plans or some of their america plans and vice versa so i'll make sure to get over to australia very very soon can't wait man well the last question i do finish every good humans episode with is what does being a good human mean to Chris Shembra? Listening uh, to your gut intuition and uh, acting on it, because when you can follow your gut intuition and you can live in integrity, you're likely going to have a positive mental attitude and an impact on that, on others around you. Beautifully answered. I love that. Well, thank you so much, man. This has been an incredible conversation. I'll leave in the show notes um, all of the links to get in contact with you, to find your books, to check out your website. And yeah, I guess any last words or anything you want to plug before we jump off air? No, I appreciate it, Cooper. You've got a great thing going and I was honored to be a part and I can't see, I can't wait to see where you go from here. The world's in for a good, good time. Cheers, mate. I appreciate your time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.